From the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, this is the Forgotten Coast Podcast. An insider's look at ground zero of climate change, a chance to preserve the voices of disappearing communities, and a conversation with those working to ensure their survival. I'm your host, Kate Lyon O'Neill, and today we're in the Gulf Coasts of Florida. where you and I are sitting today in Pensacola and Northwest Florida, and this is really the last frontier of Florida. There was a book in the 1960s called The Other Florida to really distinguish it from the rest of Florida. The peninsula of Florida is very different culturally. It's a lot of brand new residents, most of them having moved from the Northeast, and it's where the rapid population growth has been. That's where the golf courses are, the Disney World, the palm trees. That's what people think of as Florida. North Florida is more has been traditionally more rural, more conservative, more deep multi-generational communities where people have lived here for many, many generations. They didn't just move here. And culturally, really more of Alabama. I mean, the map says Florida, but really it, it, it act, we behave more like, like Alabama. Um, now, of course, that's changing some as more people move in, and we have space for people that they don't have in South Florida, and so we're getting that growth. This is Christian Wagley. He lives in Pensacola and works for Healthy Gulf, a science and policy group here in the Gulf South. On the day we met, Christian was going back and forth from the house to take care of his elderly neighbor, who was in the last days of life. He's a great guy and really connected in with the community. He loves it in the Florida panhandle. I think you'll hear that come out when he talks. We're really lucky we have um, some very large land areas that are preserved. We have the largest state forest in the state, Blackwater River State Forest. Um, we have Eglin Air Force Base, which is massive amount of undeveloped land that will always be conserved. And we have other areas, Apalachicola National Forest and other areas to the east. So our, our rivers and creeks you know, run through those areas that, where the aquifer is recharged and the water is delivered clear and pure. And that gives us a tremendous um, advantage that we have all that land in conservation. It's hard to fathom why people don't seem to know what phosphogypsum is, I concede it is a mouthful, or that phosphate mining is occurring in Florida at the rate that it is occurring. The explanation, I think, is not only is it part of Florida's cultural history in some parts, it also is happening in rural areas of Florida, the phosphate mining is. So it's happening in predominantly agricultural spaces where there's um, the population density is pretty low. This is Jackie Lopez, an attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. Their mission is to protect and conserve endangered and threatened species, not because of the human benefit from them, but because of the intrinsic value that they have. We're sitting on a bench in an absolutely gorgeous park in St. Pete, surrounded by one of the world's largest palm collections, which attracted some colorful and sometimes noisy wildlife. We're looking right out onto the Tampa Bay as we talk. A cool thing in Florida is, as crazy as we are politically, and we're not really a purple state anymore, we're kind of like a striped or a polka dot state, um, (laughs) is that regardless of your political affiliation or where you are in the spectrum of um, your, your values, almost everyone I've ever talked to in Florida 
appreciates and understands the importance of clean water and breathable air and having safe places to recreate and enjoy the outdoors without threat of getting sick. So U.S. government sues the state of Florida for not following their own water quality laws. This is 1988, and the Miccosukees are in the middle. There's going to be discussions about some kind of a settlement, um, and the feds are only concerned about Everglades National Park and Lockheadgee Refuge. And they've pretty much just written off the conservation areas. And the sugar industry up north, uh, they're discharging with state permits. And since they're being sued, it, it is becoming very obvious that the grounds that are in between are going to be the cleanup zone. That's what that state had in mind. This is Gene Duncan, and he is the water resources director for the Miccosukee tribe, who inhabit the Everglades. He didn't set out to get into indigenous environmental issues, but he's been in the role since the 1980s and has done an enormous amount of work to get the sovereign voices and decisions of the tribe heard in federal and state environmental decisions. They wrote it in a plan called the SWIM plan. It was out at about 1988 as well. SWIM plan said that they were going to protect and preserve Everglades National Park, but they were going to manage Water Conservation Area 3. Manage means they're going to send the dirty water into Conservation Area so that it's clean enough for the park. It's the federal government who decided not to protect the Indian land, only protect the federal park. Mm. It was the federal government who said, Indians, if you want to protect your land, you go get your own attorney. Wow. So they totally wrote the tribe off. Is not in, their land's not important. Mm-hmm. The tribe did go out and get an attorney, and we and we entered the lawsuit. These first few episodes of the Forgotten Coast have been hyper focused on a single town or a place. For Florida, though, I'm taking the focus a little bigger. So much of this state is interconnected through rivers, the Gulf, the Everglades, and an aquifer that actually the whole state drains into and draws from. It's a really interesting history because Florida, is its economy is based on people coming here, come here. Part of that's come here and visit, but a big part of that really is come here and live. And as you know, Florida has been, the more than anywhere else, the place in America that's accepted uh, new residents for really the whole second half of the 20th century and even to today. Uh, people up north who live in colder, whatever, grayer climates, come move to Florida and spend your glory years or whatever years, but obviously we, you know, we always think of it as more of a retirement thing. So it's, it's the growth state and it's been based on that. And like so much of America, in really the 1970s, the environmental movement really got going against Florida, like so much of the nation was just the, the impacts of growth and the impacts of kind of unbridled industry and all of that in the absence of effective regulation. Had, had polluted things so badly, right? Rivers catching on fire, driving, you had to drive in certain cities with your headlights on, right? Really? Yeah, wow. not in Florida so much as okay. more industrial cities and other places, but yeah. but what all of that resulted in is most of the major environmental legislation in this nation at the federal level was all passed in a five-year, four or five-year period between 69 and 73, you know, including the Clean Water Act. And it was a response to just these horrible conditions. And everybody said, you got to fix this. It didn't matter, Republican, Democrat, anything. But it was it had totally to, nonpartisan. had to get done. Yeah. It just was over, so overwhelming, was overwhelming that it right. had to be done. 
And the signs were so tangible, right? Haze covering up cities and raw sewage and fish kills. We had, so Pensacola Bay right here, we're sitting, you know, half a mile from it, um, had some of the worst fish kills in the nation. Millions of dead fish that stretched for, you know, for miles um, in the late 60s and early 70s. And Florida responded very strongly and created these environmental agencies and, and started to really give them the, the money and the tools they needed to, to fix this. Christian has a really wide perspective on the many issues and stakeholders from his background. So I've worked in, in local government, a little bit of state government. Uh, I worked in the private sector and then my work for Healthy Gulf, which began four years ago. And so I just feel like my work is so, and my, my, my viewpoint is so much better, just more well-rounded and balanced because I know I have a better understanding of what private sector development interests are doing, how they're making decisions, and I've worked in the government, permitting those sorts of things. So it's been very valuable. So take note, private sector people or lifetime government servants, you can make a switch and use your valuable tools somewhere else. We'll touch a little bit on this more in part two, but the system of government and regulation and permitting and enforcement is so tangled in Florida. I asked Christian to try to help break it down for me a little bit. And so the environmental agency in Florida was originally split into two arms. One was more um, enforcement oriented and legal oriented and the other one did more I think of the science and such. And the scientists of the agency were really empowered to go out and collect the data and collect the information and help us inform us so that we make the right decisions on the permitting side and cleaning up all this dirty stuff. Um, and that really went pretty pretty good in the 70s and in the 80s. Florida passed a bunch of some of the nation's really landmark growth management legislation that required all this growth management rules and regulations at the local level to manage growth and, and try to mitigate the impacts and such. And that was pretty good through the 70s and in the 80s. And by the early 90s, you started to see, early to mid-90s, the, the pushback where it took some time where... I think industry and, and, and um, development community, land development community, started to get their forces mustered enough to kind of push back on that. And then just like a, you know, something swinging in one direction, it started kind of came to a slow down, the progress slowed down, and then it started shifting back the other direction big time. And that started probably in the mid-90s, and it's really, it's really complete today to where those agencies that did that work have really been hollowed out. The science, they don't do it anymore. They do very little of it. The bottom line is they don't want to know if there's a pollution problem. Wow. They do not want to know. And so they do everything they can to not have to know that by, A, not sending people out to right, collect the data to do the science. They went from hiring you know, the best and the brightest to almost purposely from people in the agency to tell me um, they would identify they would identify to their supervisors, this is an you know, extremely smart well-trained person here, you should hire this person, they can do the work, and they would pass them over for the people right out of college with no experience that they could just kind of shape the way they, the way they wanted uh, because they, didn't, they really didn't want to know the answer and they didn't want people that had that amount of knowledge that would, you know, that, that would challenge them. That really, that really shifted tremendously to, and they would find reasons to exclude data. So if you have data that's collected by, you know, there's, an, there's, a, there's a volunteer water quality monitoring group here in Pensacola. It's the oldest in the state. It's been collecting some old fishermen that got mad because their waterways were getting so degraded. And they formed in 1970 and started and got all trained to do water sampling and everything. And they started they was doing this water sampling and collected all this great data. And they did all the, they did all the um, 
that everything was done correctly, you know, by the books. If there's protocols, it has to be done correctly in order for the sample to be valid. And they did that. And they were down there one time at the state office here, the state environmental office here in Pensacola, and they found them throwing out their data, reams of data on paper, into the dumpster. And they had to, you know, retrieve it out of the, you know, out of the, out of the dumpster. But the agency does that. They, they, they look for reasons to exclude data by saying, well, it didn't meet some certain quality standard or something like that. We've gotten real strict with that. And that, that's their bottom line. They don't want to know, and they do everything they can to exclude data and to avoid having to deal with a, a problem. Including throwing data into an actual dumpster. It becomes the classic, what they call a paper tiger. There's a lot of paper moving around. It gives the impression that things are being protected and done um, to the average person. But when you dig in deeper, you realize that, that it's not being done. They're not doing the sampling. They don't have the answers to, to the um, problems. And then um, they allow polluting entities to you know kick the can down the road basically forever and take forever and so the state has a system that's pretty similar in all states because it's it's been sort of mandated by the clean water act where you um you identify based on testing you identify bodies of water that are polluted that don't meet water quality standards so they're they're you know above that standard they're they're tube degraded and then you identify um how much of that pollutant can be allowed in that water body every year and you start to divide up who can put that in this farm can do can put in this much this city can put in this much and you start to ratchet that down so that the water body can be healthy again um and i think so far after 20 plus years of doing that i don't think florida's successfully removed a single polluted body of water from that list um because they just in the end it's too painful to try to restrict people to what they can put in and and they just they just kick the can down the road are many issues with water in Florida, especially the Everglades. But the more I looked, the more it all came back to something surprising. Phosphate. I had to do a lot of research for this episode to try and understand what is phosphate and what's going on with it. So let me take a bit to back up into history and explain why there is a huge global demand for phosphate. Monocrop agriculture which is wherein the same plant is grown year after year, is very profitable in the short term. This is how sugarcane and cotton were grown with slave labor in the Caribbean and North America. Especially in the southern United States, land was so cheap that there was little incentive for large farms and plantations to keep the soil in great condition. There was plenty more to buy, deforest, and grow. But after a few seasons or decades, if the land isn't getting anything put back into it, the productivity is going to decrease. When white people came onto the Great Plains and the Piney Woods, the indigenous people had methods of restorative and regenerative agriculture that had preserved the fertility without artificial methods. But in the search for profit and the attitude towards indigenous knowledge, these techniques were abandoned for deep plowing with animals and planting the same crop year after year. Cover cropping and crop rotation are important for the land because they reintroduce minerals that have been depleted from prior crops. 
cover cropping is growing something that may not have a commercial value. You may just simply harvest it off or plow it back into the soil, but it's important because it draws a nutrient from the soil that may be harder for another plant to get. For example, clover and alfalfa are very good at taking the natural phosphorus that exists in soil but is not accessible to most plants and then converting it as they grow. And then when you introduce the actual plants back to the soil, that phosphate is already in a more accessible form for the next crop. Crop rotation is, say, if you've got a field and the first year you're going to grow corn, then year two you grow soybeans, year three you grow wheat, and year four you leave it fallow with the cover crop on top so that you're not growing the same thing year after year in the field. Um, you're taking time because different crops take and put different things back. So those are two good ways to manage the fertility naturally. Clover and alfalfa are two cover crops that can be used as green manure, plants as fertilizer, but this doesn't happen on the commercial scale. And here in the U.S., the way that farm debt is structured, especially for small farmers and black farmers, taking land out of production for a year to grow a cover crop isn't feasible. It could result in foreclosure on the land and the loss of the farm. So instead, to restore these missing minerals, Farms of all sizes purchase chemical fertilizers, which are known as NPK. That's nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. These two episodes are going to follow the phosphate, a form of phosphorus, throughout the many waterways and ecosystems of Florida. And the best place to start is at the origin, the mosaic mine. The Mosaic Mine produces about 7 million tons of phosphate per year, and global output is about 50 million. So that's wild, right? One in seven tons of phosphate produced globally comes from one mine in Florida. Now, it's an enormous mine. Mosaic owns 380,000 acres and is actively mining on 70,000 of them. That whole holding, that's larger than the country of Jamaica, and the mine is a little smaller than the city of Philadelphia. And 60% of the phosphate used worldwide for growing crops is this non-renewable mined phosphate. The rest mostly comes from manure. Before this mine and chemical phosphate were discovered, and the processes for getting the phosphate out of the clay were developed, the major source of phosphate was guano. That's bat and bird poop. I learned that the U.S. authorized at one point anyone, anyone, like a private citizen or a corporation, who found an island rich in guano to seize it on behalf of the United States if it wasn't already claimed. Now, of course, already claimed usually meant claimed by another colonial power in search of guano, not by indigenous people or, notably, Haiti. 
There is still a territorial dispute between the U.S. and Haiti over an island that was seized by the U.S., which Haiti calls La Navas. Beginning in 1865, it was mined by Black American men from Baltimore in slave-like conditions. These are free people. The Civil War was over until there was a rebellion in the late 1880s. The first Black attorney in Maryland represented the defendants who fought the death sentence all the way up to a presidential pardon. Look up the Navassa Island Rebellion for more. It's a trip of a story that I couldn't not tell at least a little bit of. But let's head back to Florida and hear how the phosphate industry got started here, moving on from the past of caves full of spooky bats and poo. Now, over the last hundred years, the industry has ramped up and it's industrialized. It now has these massive drag lines that are capable of moving hundreds of acres in a short period of time and removing earth in a way that's just unprecedented. So phosphate mining in Florida, you can dig out, well first they dig over the, remove the overburden, which is just the, the grass and the trees. That's the, the name, is that the overburden? That's what we call habitat or Yeah, habitat. <laughs> And in the industry, that's called overburden. So that's set aside, take that away. And then you would try to access the matrix. The matrix is this combination of clay, sand, and phosphate. It's the rock, the phosphate rock. And it's about one third each. So you go through and you scoop those out. Um, Depends on where you are, but that can be up to 80 feet deep. So these are quite deep holes. Now it's nothing like in some parts of the world where you see these really impressive, they're not hundreds of feet deep and very narrow, but they are 60 to 80 feet deep and vast, tens of thousands of acres wide. Incomprehensible for most people to even look at and be able to understand what you're seeing. And so the matrix is removed. Once the matrix is removed, it gets separated. So it's, it's taken to a beneficiation plant. Um, there's all these marvelous euphemisms in, in the industry that's to be beneficiated, which is um, it gets put through this process where the sand is removed from the phosphate, it's removed from the clay. The sand is set aside to be used as um, fill for mines that are ready to be filled back in. The clay, which is hydrophilic, expands from that process of beneficiation and it soaks up the water and some amount of the chemicals that they use to separate those three things. And that gets put into a clay settling area, which is typically in a a mined out space, so a place that's previously been mined. You put this clay back in, that can be about mm, a quarter to a third of the size of a mine. They're just now these clay structures that you can't do a whole lot with. There's a little airplane that flew overhead and made the next part hard to hear. Jackie talks about that there's very little use for these clay structures. They're not structurally sound, so you can't build on top of them. You can do a little bit of pasturing, but mostly it's just tens of thousands of acres that sits there with nothing going on. The part, the the third of the matrix, which is the phosphate rock, and that gets conveyed to a fertilizer plant. And at the fertilizer plant, sulfuric acid is applied and the result is phosphoric acid. And phosphoric acid predominantly is used in fertilizer. So for every one ton that you use in commerce, five tons of phosphogypsum are created. Wow. So phosphogypsum is the radioactive waste 
that results from combining the phosphoric acid and the phosphate. And it's this radioactive waste that then stays very near the fertilizer plant and is kept in, again, the industry calls them stacks, but the stacks are hundreds of feet tall and hundreds of acres wide. So these are massive mountains in Florida's otherwise very flat landscape. And they are left there in perpetuity. So when this mining company is digging out everything from the ground, they're getting everything. We split it into thirds, the clay, the sand, and the phosphorus. But within that phosphorus, there's actually quite a lot more. So the phosphate binds with everything else that's in the earth, including Mm -hmm. uranium and and other decay products of uranium. That then decays into radon, which is the gas that gets emitted and then can make people very ill. Um, Radon exposure is the second leading cause of lung cancer in America. And it's actually the first if you take away cigarettes. So it is a significant source of fatal lung cancer. Um, And then of course there's direct gamma exposure from the radioactive um, properties of the phosphogypsum. So there's cadmium, lead, arsenic, you know, the list of all the nasty things that you don't want to find in your soil and water. That gets bound up, gets put in the phosphogypsum stack. The EPA has said, we can't do anything else with this waste. It's too dangerous to be allowed to be dispersed throughout the environment. So in Florida, we have about 25 stacks, currently has about a billion tons of this radioactive waste. Now, we're not done mining in Florida. There are, there are active mines currently. There are mines that are have their applications in or some stage of their approval process, including in DeSoto County, where there's uh, an application pending for 14,000 acre mine. So, all told in Florida, there's about 100,000 acres left of mineable land, I suppose you could call it. Now, if all of that were to be mined and then processed, we could see another half billion tons of phosphogypsum in Florida that needs to go somewhere. And in Florida, somewhere is piled up into an enormous gyp stack and left to sit. So, yeah, we have these gyp stacks everywhere. They, they're... Um, they're a really sad story for the communities that live nearby them. That River Gypstack has a community next to it called Progress Village. Progress Village was something that was created right after the interstate program. When, you know, so the 50s, the federal government built interstates throughout the United States, including in Florida, including in Tampa. And many of these interstates went right through black communities. Florida was no exception. And in Tampa, some local business owners wanted to do something about that and they created Progress Village, which is this planned neighborhood for young black families that had to relocate because of the interstate project. And in the 70s, um, there was a phosphate company. It's now, that Gypstack is now owned by Mosaic. It wasn't Mosaic at the time. Mosaic is a relatively new company. But the company moved in and wanted to put a phosphogypsum stack about a thousand feet from the community. And the community leaders said, no, not on my watch. And the company got the permits they needed. The community leaders sued. They tried to overturn it. And the phosphate company came to them and said, look, you're not going to win. The best you can hope for is the settlement that we're going to give you. 
we're going to build our gyp stack right here. We're going to give you landscaping. We're going to build you a pool. We're going to make sure that you're on the bus schedule. And we're going to give you a check every year so that you can send children from your community to college. I don't know when the terms of that expire. I think it was a 40-year contract, so they may have already expired. But even as recent as about five years ago, Mosaic, which took on the responsibilities of that company, will go to that community and deliver a check. So even the community that lives there, the community leaders that were in, you know, that were looking over their community at that time have probably passed away, realistically. That was in the late 70s. Um, I don't know whether the folks that live there know the deal that they had to make and now they live in the shadow of a phosphor gypsum stack, the literal shadow of it. It's not easy to miss a gyp stack once you know what you're looking for. I'd actually driven by one on the road from New Orleans to Pensacola without knowing what it was. I thought it was a hill in the middle of nowhere. But after my conversation with Jackie, I drove out to Progress Village to find the gyp stack there. It's just the gyp stack, isn't it? I think that's what I'm looking at on the map behind here. I think there's just a giant road that goes around it if I go this way. Let's see. Oh, is that it? Yeah, it must be. No, no, that's definitely a huge stack. Oh my god. Oh, it's, it's, if you're looking at the horizon, it, it comes up higher than some of the trees do. It was a little harder to find Progress Village. I first passed by a weird HOA right by the stack. Uh, it's a bunch of houses that look... I, I think they're all the same. Maybe there's a little difference, you know, are the front two windows flush or does one ooch back a little bit? What side of the house is your garage on? This is so close to the gyp stack. Like, I'm about to turn west towards oh yeah it just fills the sky i mean looking to the left i think i was in a valley and then out to the right is just an empty field gosh i wonder how many of these empty like most of these look inhabited radioactive is this place there's a big fake lake behind this. These water pits, they make me think of the ponds up on top. Kind of freaks me out thinking about this water so close to these houses. Progress Village was just down the street. Oh yeah, it says Progress Village CDC on the map here. I wonder what that means. Census designated? Okay, so I'm passing into that now. Maybe this will make sense. Maybe this is a little older. Yes, okay, this must be it. So this is, so the other place, you know, had these two-story, I bet they're over 2,000 square feet, um, townhomes. This has, like, low-slung, uh, single-family housing. Like, low-slung. Real low roofs and, yeah. Yeah, it's not, I mean, the other place definitely was an HOA that was maintaining everything. This, this is not, I mean, there's more character, of course, in the houses, but... The other place was pristine and mowed, and maybe that's what they do to 
keep you from thinking too hard about the chip stack behind you is make it real beautiful, right? This looks like it was built around that time that they would have been doing a, a federal highway. I don't think I can actually see the stack from here, though. At least not on the street I was on. It was on Deve. Here's Dahlia Street. Let's see. I'm at the end of 79. I don't... I actually can't see it from here. Hmm. There's much bigger trees in this neighborhood than there were in that last one I was in. So that might, that might be part of it. My last stop out here, Mosaic Park. I'm getting out to go check out the park. What was this park built on top of? Why did they give this piece of land? Oh, it looks really nice if it was about to say if it was safe to swim and there's a guy in the water now. Yeah, it's... Oof. There's a spooky decaying doll. That's scary. The water looks kind of like rust-colored, but I can't tell if that's what's on the bottom or... No, it does. It's decidedly brown. Yeah, if that water... <laughs> if Mosaic hadn't um, messed up the water, it might actually be really nice to swim out here. If it's shallow over here, too, and looking at all the sea creatures, that sounds really nice. I'm not going to do it, though. Well, I followed the phosphate. This is where it comes from. The trash bins here, they must have been chemical bins. It says Hang Tong with Chinese characters on it. Huh. Did Mosaic just get one of their nasty waste trash barrels and just bring it over here for trash. That's gross. <laughs> That's really gross. Oh. I feel like if this was a horror movie, there'd be some swamp thing that would emerge. You know, there's a little girl on the swings and there's a guy swimming in in the bay and the swamp thing's gonna emerge and, and grab them all, but the thing isn't in the swamp. It's just across the street. It's the phosphate plant. So hopefully this first episode gave you a sense of where all this phosphate is coming from. And when it rains, like I said, it's all one water system in Florida, so it's all going to come in somewhere. And that somewhere is Lake Okeechobee. That's Gene's area of expertise. Next episode, we're going to look at once that phosphate enters into the water system, the trouble that we face with getting it out. See you then. The Forgotten Coast Podcast is a production of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy in conjunction with the Red, Black, and Green New Deal and Gulf South for a Green New Deal. Thank you so much to today's guests, Jean Duncan, Jackie Lopez, and Christian Wagner. I'm Kate Lyon O'Neill. I host, direct, research and got on the road to florida for this episode you can find us at the forgotten coast podcast.com